Uh, this is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to o Radio. We explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur, head instructor at Seal Fitz and Beto Mind Academy, executive coach at Spartan 7, and director of human resilience at Aperion Zoe. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated various somatic practices into his work. You can learn more about Cosper at his website, www.cosperscafidi.com. That's C-O-S-P-E-R-S-C-A-F-I-D-I.com. And today's guest is Amanda Jade Fiorino. She's forged by ocean storms, rolling tides, dense forests, elusive wolves, wailing whales, fire-bellowing dragons, and cunning cunning cougars. Awake to the living and embodied presence of her ancestors, she continues to listen to and is guided by her Greek, Macedonian, Passamaquiddy, Sicilian, and Celtic bloodlines. As a mythic medicine guide, agent of the feral feminine, writer, poetress, mother, and mountain dweller, she supports people in cultivating soul-rooted pathways for participation and psycho-spirituality resilience and resourcing. Her work calls upon dream work and shadow work, somatic ecology, and experiencing interspecies and place-based inquiry, grief work, contemplative practices, mythology, archetypal psychology, and more. Wow. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you. Wow. You know, as I said offline, like the 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 totality of your work, like all the things you bring together, including your bloodlines, is amazing. Um, so can you tell me, first of all, like how all these things came together in you as in, into a healer? Yeah. Into a guide? Um, yeah, let's, that's, it's such a winding journey. Um, but it, it began, I would even say that my, my um, professional, not professional, my, more of my formal education certainly um, continues to play into it, which was um, English literature and women's studies and anthropology. And so my own curiosity for um, human development and the pathways of human development and looking at it from a much larger um, social lens and okay. developmental lens um, rooted in culture. And that, that brought me along a journey through um, experiences like Peace Corps. And then I, I stepped out of Peace Corps and I wanted to approach human development from a more holistic um, lens, a more holistic foundation. And I had started doing that with contemplative practices and somatic practices like yoga and began a nonprofit years ago called Empower Shakti International, which is no longer. And that focus was actually working with people, creating social change through mindfulness. And I, uh, nonprofit work is incredibly difficult and, and strenuous and requires a lot of devotion. And for the circumstances of my life at the time, as my, the, the ground underneath me, my whole life began to um, break apart and much of it at my own hands, um, but a lot of it also with mystery coming in and breaking my life apart. And that included this nonprofit. And that, that breaking apart, that crumbling of my life 
and this, this confusion of um, who am I in the world? Where am I going? What am I doing? Um, what's the story and of, of my life? What's the story that's guiding me, the deeper mythology of me? Um, that all of that smaller story began to fall away as well. And so there was this feeling of being lost in this um, groundless place, this, this chasm that opened up from underneath me and, and sucked me down and under and created what some Jungian depth psychologists and others in, in the camps that I find myself would call a descent soul. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually deepened me and brought me into fuller relationship with the kind of work that I really love doing in the world, which is working with people in those places of massive transition and upheaval and threshold crossing and where life begins to um, pull them apart, their, their stories are pulled apart. And so I, from, from that journey of somatic practices and contemplative practices and therapeutic practices and um, along the way neuroscience-based techniques that I found my way into for a short while, I started um, kind of drawing all of those with me, bringing them along and allowing them to shape shift in their own way as they needed to, to continue to work with people from a a totally different approach, which is helping people to live a soul rooted life, um, assisting people in coming into deeper relationship with the richer story and the images and the encounters, um, the, you might, some, some might call it their Dharma, others might call it their way or, um, what, what it is that this life is actually wanting of them and the real deep gift that this life is, is longing to see embodied and brought forth in the world. And so it's, it, um, I've, I've come to this place out of all these different pathways by, uh, in, in, in many respects, really grueling pathways, <laughs> um, to, to have people, yeah, to have people actually stand in the truth at the center of them, or as, as David White would put it, the, the image that they're born with. So. Yeah, so this is going to sound like a very strange question, maybe not to you, but to my listening audience. What do you know about your birth? My, my birth? Yeah. Um, in what respect? <laughs> you know, because I, I was uh, listening to your talk and, and all the different lines that come together, because you talked about bloodlines, where I actually, I talked about bloodlines in your biography. Uh, I can't imagine that this is the, the way you're living and teaching your life is like an adult manifestation. I have to imagine that you came into this world with this kind of calling. Oh, yeah. So I'm kind of well, wondering what, like, you, like, if you know anything about your conception, your birth, and your early youth, and how it shaped you to become the healer that you are. Yeah, so I have, I certainly now more in my adulthood am aware of it in a different way. I have ancestral bloodlines um, from my father's side, there's Macedonian, Greek, and Sicilian. And then from my mother's side, there's Passamaquoddy, which are part of the Algonquin nation, as well as some um, Celtic, Irish, and, and Swedish in there. And I love that question because what immediately comes to mind is when I was, when I was really young living in Maine, I would be out in the forests really thick, dense forest, beautiful forests. And I would probably around like the age of six or so, 
I would look up into the trees and I could actually see the faces of ancestors in the trees and I would be speaking with them. I don't remember um, from a cognitive place um, what it was that I was speaking to them about. And my mom would see me through windows in the house talking to these trees. And, and she, I would come running inside and she'd say, what were you doing? I said, well, I'm speaking to the trees. And she never questioned it, though I wish she had um, drawn a bit more out from me. And what I do remember now in my, my adult years, in my body of me, the, the soma of me, is that there was something being imprinted upon me from those ancestors. And I speak of ancestors, both human and, and more than human, the trees themselves. And that something was being imparted to me in those moments of remembrance, of uh, understanding myself to be a part of the larger ecology of the world, the earth itself, that I, that I grow out of that place. And even from my Greek ancestry, there's a word that the Greeks have, which is called autokathonos, which means to truly grow out of place, um, to grow out of um, the land from which you reside and to be a part of the larger ecology of your own belonging. And, and so community and kinship becomes so much more than something that's human-centered. And that's a part of the work that I do, which is helping people in the in coming into relationship with the deeper story of who they are in the world. A part of that is actually coming back into deeper relationship with the earth itself and that who they are and who they understand themselves to be is intimately tied to um, their what I would call eco concentric circles of belonging. And, and that the, the trees that they're surrounded by shape them and the, the grass, the particular kinds of grass and the, the insects and the wingeds that you hear speaking constantly that their songs creep into some deep part of us and are informing us and um, from the deer or the, the, the certain predators that might inhabit that space. And, and so my ancestral bloodlines, I can feel speaking more loudly these days in a way that I'm more, um, wasn't that I wasn't conscious of them when I was younger, but it seemed almost so seamless and intuitive that I wouldn't have even thought or second guessed it. And now in my adulthood, I can hear them in a very different way, speaking through me and reflecting on the a part of the, the the certain pieces of my life growing up such as growing up in Maine which is close to the lands of the uh, you know there's the Passamaquoddy who live up in Maine and then further up the Algonquin Nation higher up in Canada um, <clears throat> that I believe the the sense that I have the truth of experiences like that was that my ancestors at a really young age were were actually imparting some kind of wisdom or planting as if the soil of my body were receiving a seed from them and my my relationship with the land out there as well as the unfortunate consequence of our industrial um, capitalizing culture pulled me away through more of my older um, adolescent years from that kind of relating with the earth, though there were plenty of threads um, uh, wandering the shores of the ocean instead of spending time with kids my own age and um, being, being in the woods and quarries. And so there's some still remnant of it speaking to me, but there is also an element of forgetting. And in, in my later adult years, there was, there was the process of actually remembering again and truly like re-membering, remembering that I am, that this is my place of belonging and ancestrally and ecologically. Yeah. 
Wow, that's amazing. Did you have any um, guides along the way, like when you're a young, young woman who like opened some doors for you in this kind of space? Because you, know, you, you travel and you know, you, you've talked about mythic poetics, you know, the Jungian archetypal realm. You've talked about somatics, um, cognitive neuroscience, uh, contemplative practices. Or were there people who opened doors for you? Or was this just, a, how, how did this work for you? Yeah, that's, um, I, I did have and, and have had really amazing um, mentors and guides that have stepped in throughout the course, some of them more informally, others more formally. I would say the earth itself and the different places were guides for me. Sounds like it. Yeah, very much. And, and, and shaping me and listening to the unseen ones as well, the more formless ones that are, that are all about us. And uh, one particular mentor of mine who lives in Boulder still. Um, she was an integrative medicine health specialist hmm. um, with a variety of different focuses. And she scooped me up at one point. And that was where I really started diving into neuroscience-based techniques and a deepening of contemplative practices and mindfulness-based practices and therapeutics and really starting to look at the language that we use around ourselves and the body and the earth and all the way from even a, a yoga class as an example to give something more concrete the language that's being used which still has these these remnants of a power over dynamic mm -hmm. and how can we bring in a language that's power to and with um so through the body with the body in the same way that since the body is of the earth how do we bring in a language and an awareness um that is co-participatory and co-dreaming and co-visioning sounds um, like non-dualistic as well um in some respects yeah so it's kind of like a both hand um yeah yeah because it's the recognition of the distinctiveness of life as well as the way in which life is completely interconnected and interdependent yeah, yeah and i love that and the necessity of that so so there was her and then i started stepping into work with animus institute out in durango colorado and i'm still um, uh, in their nature-based underworld guiding program. And so one of my, one of the, the founder, Bill Plotkin is a mentor oh. of mine. Okay. And, um, and then several of the other guides that, that are a part of that beautiful organization that at different points, um, learning from them and receiving from them. And then I would say for, for, that's more like the human piece of it, but then some of the non-human spaces that have been guides and mentors to me were places like um mother maui and that i that was i actually ended up on maui at the time where my whole life that chasm opened and my whole life started falling apart and it was like being held in this tenacious um uh lava infused womb <laughs> where um, I was given the space to actually fall apart and then continue to experience more uh, dissolution. And when was that, if you don't mind me asking? That was in 2015, I believe it was. I got, I, I, I actually, it was when I, when I had my nonprofit and I went and led a training, a mindfulness-based education training in Mongolia to a women's nonprofit that I was connected with. And while there, because I had distanced myself from the habitual state of my ongoing life, all of a sudden things began to crystallize for me. 
around the truths um, that mattered most. And one of those was that I, I didn't actually want to be married. And I was married mm-hmm. at the time and, and that I didn't, I didn't know who I was. And I, have, I came from a childhood that was dynamic, like all of ours, and, and mixed with um, its various kinds of woundings and, and traumas and um, flavors of uh, abuse at times. And, um, and so I, I found that, and, and of course, that created a bit of this way of moving through the world where I was, I, I had um, experienced something, but was never given the space to integrate and metabolize and then something else would happen and I didn't have space to integrate and metabolize and integrate. And so there was this big, huge backlog throughout the course of my life. Mm -hmm. And I stepped away from it into Mongolia and, and all of a sudden it became really crystal clear. And I got back and immediately when I got back, I spoke to my beautiful ex-husband, stunning human being and, and said, "I, I don't know who I am. And um, I can't keep doing this. And that was the initiating choice that that was a domino effect in my life and led me to living in Maui for a short time for a summer and being with the land out there and um, all the way from this deep relational space on the lava fields with a particular tree that I came to visit every single day and, and um, poetry began to flow through me from some other world and um, images and visions and, and um, apparitions. And, and so I was in this very big liminal, liminal space in my life, um, kind of like what it must feel like even in a, in a birth canal <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> to come from this place and to be, to be being shaped and formed in some way. And then. <laughs> I, I love the imagery. Yeah. Um, and I have to imagine because of that experience that, uh, you're an amazing guide to help other people who are either entering that space or find themselves caught up in that space without the resources to navigate it as you obviously have had and have developed over time. Is that your primary work is, is people like, first of all, let me ask you, uh, is there a primary group of people you work with and is that the kind of work you do with them? Like, is it females, men? I mean, yeah. Um, It's both. It's all like across the gender spectrum. I find as a theme that more often than not, I'm working with a lot of female identified or femme identified or those who Mm -hmm. would identify as women in the world, though some men periodically. And Mm -hmm. I do focus on a couple of different things, which I find that they're not really separate camps, though some, some of my colleagues might consider them a little bit more separate camps, which is a component of healing and psychospiritual resourcing. And then the other piece, which is the gathering up of um, images, encounters, um, numinous encounters, visions, experiences, things that, that would have happened in prior years that um, have stuck with people, shadow work or projection, core wound work. And all of that is a way of, of bringing them into relationship with that, that emergent deeper story or their mythopoetic um, way of being in the world, their, their mythic medicine, their gifts. And I find that, um, that, that there's an element of that soul way of being that, that perhaps again, like some, some might call it Dharma um, or my, one of 
Bill Plotkin would refer to it as ecological niche. Um, and, and that the healing piece, the psycho-spiritual resourcing piece enables us to keep going mm -hmm. and deepening into that story of us and the unraveling of the way that we were in the world and what the world actually wants of us. And that means that we actually, when we are going through what animus would refer to as the descent to soul, um, and Jungians would refer to that as well, um, that in, in order to be in that kind of terrain, you actually do need to, to have resources and ongoing yeah. resources, as well as encountering a lot of mini threshold crossings for your own healing that occur just kind of naturally. They, they, they pop up and, and you have to go, okay, what are, what's the, what is it that I need? What capacity will enable me to actually be with this wounding in such a way that I can um, not only metabolize it, but potentially remythologize it. So, so from what I'm hearing you say is you are there Mongolia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a fun way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're Maui, they're Mongolia. Uh, yeah, they're exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. I mean, they're yeah. creating those healing containers for them. Yeah. And, yeah, and to help them along the way to actually find, so they're part of that resourcing then is also yeah. a... a um, reframing and, and widening of the narrative of their own um, place of belonging. So you could say that soul gift or the ecological niche or um, the mythic medicine is also a particular way of belonging to the world. And, and again, that belonging is not human-centered. It's actually um, more earth-centered or eco-centered. So, so would you send for an individual that, that, something comes through them that you're attempting to connect them with like their calling i mean do you, in your in your view is there like a uh, a soul that call that's calling forth in any one individual that's unique to them do you mean is it like specifically that every single person has their own unique calling and that they're not yeah. really yeah so like i would again you, is that too binary <laughs> No, 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 go ahead. No, oh. please, please continue the question. You, you no, had no. a little bit more. No, um, okay. it's, it's not too binary. And in fact, what I would say, this is where um, I feel like it's a bit of a both and, and I don't know that I would I... actually have a, a very um, concrete answer of, of yes or no for it. But the way that I relate to that is one soul gift or one's mythic medicine or dharma a way of belonging to the world, the way that it expresses through them is distinctive, has its own kind of chord in the, the chorus of creation. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, one wouldn't actually know um, their particular song or their particular way of belonging without their entire web work of relationship. Okay, excellent. Because I, I, I heard you talk about the ecological niche and then I heard you talk about like more of the individual and I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm like, okay, I know you connect the, I mean, connecting is not the right thing, but I was trying to figure out how you bring the bridge, those two in my mind that you articulate that and you just did a perfect job. So thank oh, you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. So it makes sense to me how you see the world that way. Um, so, you know, obviously everyone's unique in how, what they bring to work with you. But can you talk about some of the t techniques, technologies, practices that you do bring to the table when you work with someone? Yeah, absolutely. 
So one of my favorite ones that I'm really passionate about is dream work. Nice. And the, yeah, and <laughs> I love it. I think dreams are just absolutely mm -hmm. stunning and mysterious. And the kind of dream work that um, I engage, which is um, this more or less the style that um, Animus engages and um, some others would engage as well, which is non-interpretive and really relational. And by that, I mean, we, are, we perceive the dream as an actual living ecology and, and its own and the dream being their own kind of sovereign um, entities in some way. And that we're not having the dream, the dream is actually having us that we're being dreamed by something and where we get to slip into these other worlds. And so there's this perception of the dream being initiatory in some way. And you could even say having its own elements of, of, of healing, if that might be a part of the initiation. And so the dream work would actually be helping the dreamer, the one of them in the dream, get closer to the experience and let the experience of the dream have them and work them um, into the shape that the dream wants them to be. And which is really thrilling and it's marvelous and it's so beautiful to actually watch. So you actually end up partnering with the dream itself and holding um, as a guide, holding the question of, gosh, what does this dream like? What does this dream want to have this, this dreamer experience? Like, what is it, what's it doing right now? Um, and so you could even arguably work with not work on, but work with the same dream for, you know, several months or an entire year and slip back in in the same way that you would wander the same trail. Um, maybe it's your favorite trail on a mountainside. And every time you go there, there's something different, some new way of experiencing it and encountering it and honoring it. So that's the dream work. Well, let me ask you about that if you don't mind. So yeah. one word I heard you use is shape. Mm -hmm. The dream shapes you. So can you talk about how somatics plays a role in your dream work and specifically, and then generally speaking as well? Yeah. Um, I think somatics is actually incredibly important and um, it's inseparable, honestly, from it. And a part of that is the, the body of us, we are experiencing the world. We're experiencing our imaginations through our bodies. We're experiencing the dreams with even our senses. Um, and so the, the, it, we can feel the dream itself in the body of us, especially if it holds a, a clear charge, um, if it's really fresh or there's some way in which it came in and really decided this was going to be uh, an intense emotional experience. And so the, the emotions, the, the possible memories that come through the dream are felt in the body. And as you're working with the dream, that's a part of the the hope is that we can actually help the dreamer get closer to the emotional and sense-based experience of the dream because there's a, a whole um, cellular reshaping that actually starts to occur when people begin to experience the dream in that way. And depending on the nature of the dream, what the dream wants of the person, how the dream working with the dream goes, um, it could be something because it's initiatory, someone might encounter a dream image, let's say for myself, like, um, uh, a great white shark, which is a common um, ally and theme and guide for me. And being with the actual terror of that great white shark of allowing myself to feel it and, and slip even beyond what the dream, what some might call the dream ego, the one of you in the dream is assuming of that being in the dream, relating with that being vastly differently 
And because of that relating with that being in the dream and the experience in your body of that being in yourself in the dream, you actually come out through the other side of the dream, um, wholly reformed and changed in a lot of ways. Wow. I, I, I love the uh, visual of that. So I can see what you're talking about. And, and I have to imagine, and, I, and my language is very binary, you know, categories. Um, and I apologize for that because I know you, you're, the way you're discussing things is much more ecologically sound than my categories. But I, um, I have to imagine that, that it, dreams for you can also be transpersonal in orientation, meaning that, that some other thing is trying to come through the individual that's not specific to the individual biography or even about them necessarily, but something that has to come through them for the benefit of even another human being or an ecological niche or other sentient beings or something along those lines. Is that a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. I would actually argue that um, the idea that this is my dream, when someone says my dream, there's almost a little bit too much of a, I would, the language that I would use is kind of like a colonizing language in some respect, because it's a very individual, hyper individualistic, yeah, like this is about me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and really, if we're a part of the larger web of existence uh -huh. and that our mythos or our soul gifts or our mythic medicine is actually in service to the rest of the world, then any dream that comes through us and is shaping us in some particular way, whether it be, the feeling that the dream is visionary and prophetic or it's initiatory in some other sense, it actually, because of it reshaping us, the reshaping of us is actually meant to be in service to the, the larger whole. And so it's not ever really our dream as it is. Um, this is great because I'm now going to have to reflect deeply about my own hyper-individual approach to a lot of things. <laughs> this is good. So thank you for that. For the, even, even my language and my questions come from that. What about the individual? How, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. asking such beautiful questions. Um, so say more, you, you know, you, you talk about the dream, but then you're going to, you're going to start talking about other practices you bring into your work as well. Yes. So um, somatic based practices that, um, that could be twofold um, in a sense. It could be either it's again, um, having said that they kind of flow between one another and with one another, I'll just break them apart so that we can get a sense of them more clearly. Mm -hmm. But there could be somatic practices that are rooted more in um, a focus on healing and psycho-spiritual resourcing. And then there's the somatic practices that would bring people closer to the shape of who they're meant to be in the world and how they embody themselves. And so I'll use an example of my own mythos, which is a piece of it that came last year was this feral conjurer. And I found myself going, gosh, like who, in the first time I experienced this part of my own mythic imagery, I went, gosh, she's, she's fierce. Like I can't even, I, wouldn't, I don't even know what to do with her. And, um, and so over time, actually inviting her, the essence of her in through my body and, and actually wondering like, how does this feral chondra move through the world? And how mm. does she understand circumstances? What does she see that... I wouldn't see or how does she understand things that I wouldn't understand in that way. Um, and so we get to feel and even the, the, how does she move like truly move through the world? What's the way that she would inhabit my body that I might not generally on a day to day. So there's that. Um, and, and it might start again, coming back to the healing, it might start with a really foundational practice for people, which is 
just beginning to come into deeper relationship with the, their own animal body, um, that they are sensual, erotic, um, animal-bodied beings, soft-bellied beings, and they experience emotion and sensation and um, being able to track that. And then, of course, skill sets like that would then allow you to come over to more of this mythic um, medicine soul image um, way of belonging to the world embodiment so that you can start to track those images and go, how are they alive in me? Um, and how do they show up in the world? How do they want to show up in the world? So there's that piece with the somatics that, that could be more or less a real simple way of speaking to that because our industrial culture is so um, removed from mm -hmm. the body and mm -hmm. even um, there's not a lot of emotional fluency and mm -hmm. Uh, intelligence and I don't necessarily mean that in the way that that intelligence might be defined but um do you the work that you do do um is it with individuals or do you ever work with couples and groups because I could imagine the power of your approach within, within a couple them or within a small group of people I work with both so groups okay. and individually I don't think I've ever worked with a couple yet with with any of this work which would be really interesting yeah it um, really would be let, <laughs> would, me would be let me let me encourage you to do so <laughs> thank you yeah i'm gonna put that out there to mystery and see if there's any uh uh fruit that want to drop into my lap um but yeah most it's either individually or in groups and the individual both are really beautiful because the group setting creates a, a particular cauldron of experience. And so everybody is um, being shaped and formed not only by their own encounters with their own mythos, but by the, the mythos or the encounters of everybody else. And then the individual ones are great because it allows for a lot more attention to those particular um, images that are part of that person um, or those encounters or experiences or something perhaps that's, that's really needing a little bit more one-on-one -on -one tending mm -hmm. and yeah so they kind of yeah they're both they're both there awesome so some of the things i've heard you say is dream work mm -hmm. um, a lot of somatic awareness you know the intelligence mm -hmm. of the body sensations emotions uh, you talked about yoga earlier so mm -hmm. I, I assume some yogic practices are also part of your work they are yeah Yep, they yoga and yoga is wonderful because when um, even just more intuitive organic um, somatic expression or experiencing can and more intuitive embodiment can feel like really um, terrifying terrain for a lot of people and yoga is beautiful in its ability to bring a group of people together and there's a cohesivity that's that's present because everyone is more or less engaging the same shapes mm -hmm. and and so there's an element of togetherness in that and then out of a practice like yoga you can begin to invite a little bit more intuitive organic movement yeah. and it could start out really small and then people might start to to dive in and and really step away from that more prescriptive shape that's been offered yep. so yeah, so there's the, and then there's uh, things like shadow work and projection work, which is slightly different um, 
you have you could have like your garden variety shadow work which would be a part of recognizing yourself and the other and that mm-hmm. um you're you know there's something that you're seeing out there that that person is and it can be really healing for relationships then the the other layer to the shadow work that i do in that animist practices is actually um getting to the the, the, you could even say like biting through the flesh of a, of a peach and getting to the seed at the center that would help something else kind of grow inside of you if you were to plant it in there. And so it could be some kind of a resource or a, an aspect of your mythos or, or soul gifts in some way that reside in that shadow piece. Mm-hmm. And it's in the shadow because of, uh, of your own, um, the belief the held belief that um, at some point you, it was aware, some part of you understood that you were not ready for that. And, and so it becomes othered and cast off somewhere else. And it's really threatening and dangerous to actually integrate that back in. And so again, it comes back to what kind of psycho-spiritual readiness and resourcing is necessary to engage that element of shadow and when you do start to recognize that that's the, what you're dancing with and you begin to integrate it more fully, um, it becomes a part of the, the power, the force of, of you in the world. I, I appreciate the kind of the resourcing approach because uh, it, it seems like a lot of people like to break through and grab that gem that's hidden by the dragon in the cave, <laughs> and yeah. which can be really dangerous for a lot of people because they don't have the resources to deal with any of that stuff. So I, I really appreciate kind of the more mindful, thoughtful approach that I hear you take with your clients. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I can, I can speak for that years ago for myself, even that approach of like wanting to just grab it and hold on to it and, and being humbled <laughs> by, by that kind of grabbing and reaching for the gem and, and, and finally actually recognizing within myself of, oh, actually, let me, let me check in and, and let me instead have a courtship even with, mm-hmm. with shadow. Let me, let me dance with it. Let me, um, understand all of the ways that it the circumstances that would cause that to arise or the the triggerings or the places in me that are terrified of it and and um tend to those places enough that i could actually start to invite that piece back in so what you just said leads me to my last question uh dance how does movement and dance play into the work that you do do yeah dance so that word it's so it can be it can mean so many different things and dance is i i love dance with a a widened definition of it which is for people to actually come into their bodies and move in the way that they want to move and and i like to think of um even my own my own little wee four-year-old creature um when music comes on there's no there's no um, holding back. He's not wondering if his dance moves look sexy or if they're right or if they're cool. And, and he's doing things even that someone looking might go, that's not dance. And it's like, yes, it is. It's movement. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's articulating himself and he's expressing himself. And, and I find that coming together in that way with, with rhythm and, and music and, and song, um, that it, it actually helps to bring something out and alive within us to, to encourage us to embody more of the truth of who we are in the world. Love that. Because, 
we are body-based beings and and so much of our culture is, is it still has such hefty remnants of more of these cartesian newtonian mechanistic mm-hmm. approaches and instead um it's the example that i gave prior of the feral conjurer of yeah. as a piece of my own mythos which is how does she move in the world and so in a setting where i might have like this this um like we had last year women's fire dances and and so the the encouragement was to actually step back into the intelligence of the body and what happens when we start to step back into the intelligence of the body and the the sensual erotic animal body of us and i like the metaphor that i that i often offer up to people when you can when you can sense and and i have these moments still um from time to time that contracting down in my body mm-hmm. and how vulnerable it can be to move in the way that you want to move and i love saying well isn't it fascinating that there's no one telling mountain lion not to stretch her spine the way that she does or stick her tongue out as she yawns or no one saying to humpback whale don't you leap out of the water like that and crash your massive body down along the surface or um you know no one's no one's speaking to a dog and saying don't lick your your anus or (laughs) don't go sniffing that don't roll in that shit um (laughs) some people are um especially with the last one but but it's to encourage that that animal knowing in in someone um to encourage moving through the world in a way that challenges the current constructions and paradigms that would actually want to prohibit people from experiencing themselves um, as fully as they can of articulating the truths as fully as they can and and we see that even in the ways that um, still across the spectrum um, uh, women are told that they that they can't move or dress a particular way because um, it's it's provocative in this in this um, stereotypical negative kind of patriarchal sense or um if you're if you're moving sensually and uh you are advances that you didn't want are are placed in your direction then it's your fault um without actually recognizing in fact the culture that we're living in is deeply unhealthy and to move intuitively from your animal body and to move the truth of you through the world is actually the very healthy thing to do amen (laughs) (laughs) You know, actually, um, kind of running low on time, but what I'd actually love to have you back on if you'd be interested, because I would love to talk about the what I, the way I frame it is the mechanistic versus organic way of of how our, our culture is very mechanistic. It treats mm-hmm. us like machines and and the and not as fully embodied and sold live living human beings, from our education system to our medicine to you know everything. Uh, and I'd love to have you back on if you'd be interested and, and have that more of the 30,000 foot view of, of how we can reimagine a culture which supports all the wonderful things that you're talking about. I would absolutely love that and I'd be honored. Oh, that'd be awesome. Cool. <laughs> so how can people learn more about your work? Um, they could visit wildearthmedicine.com and visit me there. And I have different... Um, articles out there from grief to redefining narratives around mother, um, which are predominantly published through the Urban Howl right now. And and then different programs. There's an organization 
um, an entity, not an organization, but an entity, a body of work that a colleague of mine and I have started that's um, called Feral Yoni Productions. And don't let the, the language fool you. It's for everyone of any gender. <laughs> um, but it, the most recent offering that we have is Feral Lunacy, Tending Psycho-Spiritual Resilience and Soul-Rooted Participation Amidst Collapse. And that's an ongoing lunar cycle based offering that's virtual and there's a sliding scale and we ask that if people it's still financially inaccessible for anyone at this time that they reach out to us and we're happy to work with them. Nice. nice. So those would be the, the main places. So wildearthmedicine.com or Feralioni Productions um, or some of my publications through the Urban Howl. So make sure to inc I'll include that in all the show notes as well. Thank you. <laughs> Amanda, this has been great. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I so enjoyed talking with you. This is just so nourishing um, and enriching to have these kinds of conversations. Excellent. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye.